The following episode contains major plot points that may spoil movies for some viewers. A spoiler warning is now in effect. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I'm your host Colin Bourne. And I'm Leah. Thank you all for listening tonight and we are going to be continuing our Saw series. Yep, so this is part three of the Saw franchise review. We are going to be covering Saw films five and six. From what Aaliyah was telling me, she thinks that these two are the best ones. They have an interesting concept behind both of them, which I will get into as we go along. I was going to ask you, too, what is the interesting concept with this? But we will I will get into that when we get further into the plot. Because each of these movies have something interesting surrounding them. And they kind of reflect what was going on at the time. I mean, Saw 5 was released in 2008, which was when the recession happened. Mm-hmm. And it was a really hard-hitting time for a lot of people in terms of being able to afford the cost of living and other things, which... So that culminates into this movie? A little bit, yes. Hmm. Very much so. So I know you haven't gotten further into the franchise review since we last talked. And no. we actually tried watching Saw 3 together, which we haven't finished. You want to explain why that is? I try to remember... Wait, why is that? So we started watching mm-hmm. Saw 3 sometime this week, I think way earlier this week, mm-hmm. and then you paused, and we had to go to bed, mm-hmm. and then we never picked it up again. Well, I slept, that's why. No. And I slept on this movie. Yeah, but you could have picked it up at another time, but no. You wanted to watch Wakanda Forever, which made me cry, <laughs> and then you wanted to watch other shit that had nothing to do with horror. I don't know. You watched that Fear No Evil movie, which I didn't watch, but... No, actually, Fear No Evil was actually really good, and I found out about Fear No Evil because we were watching the part three of In Search of Darkness. The... That was another thing we were watching that which I still us. need. To, which I still need to finish that, but... Um... It's five so you've done worse if you could ever if you could watch lord of the rings or whatever like i could i think you could watch this too i don't want to watch lord i know you don't but i'm I'm not gonna get into it with you i already watched (laughs) wakanda forever which that was a great movie though it was a good movie again it made me cry and i'm not a marvel fan when I when you made me watch Black Panther a few years ago i did enjoy it even though it had a lot of parallels to the lion king (laughs) This one was very emotionally driven, which I totally understand. And I think the the moments that highlight Chadwick Bosman's portrayal or, I guess, impact on the movie and his absence really affected a lot of his cast and crew members personally, which I felt emotionally was very hard-hitting. What? Before you go into deep further with Black Panther Wakanda Forever... And before I, just, I cry again. Forever. I just want to let you know... Stop crying. I, <laughs> I want to let you know that we're not going to spoil anything. So we're all, all, only we're going to say is it's a great movie, and if you get a chance, please watch it because it's totally worth the watch. Another thing I've been watching and actually kind of catching up on is Boulay Brothers' Dragula on uh, Shudder. Oh, yeah. Because I am by no means somebody who follows the drag world that much. I know of it, and I've actually, in my early 20s, I attended and frequented a few drag clubs. <laughs> Me too. Which, yeah, they're fun. Yeah, and they are fun. They're, they're a lot, and I've met a few, I knew a few people that were drag queens also, and they're some of the feistiest people i ever met. Yeah, and in recent years, drag has become essentially an art form, which I think is very, very cool. So what I liked about Dragula was that it t- 
takes the drag culture and applies horror, filth, and the glamour aspect to it. But I feel like watching definitely uh, Dragula for sure definitely have a lot of that MTV reality drama s to it. It does have a lot of drama to it. There's I mean, a lot of fucking drama. I don't even like that. I and that's the thing with me and why I kind of was turned off by a lot of reality shows back in like the 2000s was I never really wanted to know about the drama. I just wanted to know like what's going on. Like especially with this with Dracula, you want to know what's going on with the competition. Right. Like exactly. Like if it was like a competitive reality competition, you want to see the competitions. You want to see how creative each competitor can get with their designs, with their models, with exactly. everything. Yeah. And, and that's what I like when I watch Fule Brothers Dracula is each one of these competitors has has a different personality. I just, I couldn't help but to watch it. I didn't want to watch it, but there were like certain aspects about it that are really good too. And I will say this, that the last episode we watched, not this one, but the one before that was actually really good because Henry Rollins was on the show as a special guest judge. Yeah. Yeah, so and, we yeah, it was we perfect. Are, we are on season three. We just watched, I believe, episode two. I believe or three. Mm. Yes, three. Henry Rollins was a guest host he was along a judge, with yeah. a guest judge, along with Peaches Christ, and then before <laughs> before that, I love that name. Before that, they did a vampire challenge where Bonnie Aaron was a guest judge as well and she played the nun in the conjuring series and also played in jacob's wife yeah she was the head vampire in jacob's wife the one who essentially turns barbara crampton into the vampire and it looked like a nosferatu-esque character she has a very nosferatu-esque looking look and concept to her design like it looks really unique does she look like that in real life or no you saw her you you catch the tail end of that episode. i forgot what she looked like but it's whatever i mean i'll show you a picture yeah later on show today. me a picture later but you know i wanted to say this before we go any further i mm-hmm. wanted to say you know how we always talked about what drag queen names would be great to have and stuff like that I think I thought of one before we went on the show, and I told you of it, but I don't yeah. know what you actually think. But I was thinking the name Swamp Thang. It sounds like a generic version of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, no, Swamp Thing. It's the character from DC, but it's yeah, called Swamp I, Thang, so it's I a know. slutty Swamp Thing. I know, but still. You it know what? Fine. It mm. could be better. You're, you could be better. It could be better. I don't mm. know what my drag name would be. I would be a drag king, but Grave, I, I wouldn't even know. Gravy Biscuit. No. <laughs> Not you, but for me. Anyway, how was your birthday, Colin? Tell everybody how you enjoyed your birthday this week. Yo, I gotta say, man, if I could cry, I would, but I have a problem with it. But if I could cry, I would, because my birthday was great. It was yeah. a great fucking birthday. It felt, if I had a lot of fun with it. We ate food. We uh, went to Dave & Buster's for video games. I got my birthday cake Yeah. over at um, Cheesy, Eddie's. Cheesy Eddie's. But thanks to this lovely woman right here, she made my birthday so much fun. And I want to thank you for that. Yeah, well, I'm glad I was able to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Wish I could say the same about you to me. We're recording this on February 3rd. My birthday's in 11 days, and normally we would do birthday episodes for each other. So Mm -hmm. this year we did a birthday episode for Colin. Yep, and then we got one for you coming up. Well, not exactly. We should. No, not really, because here's the thing. Why not? Well, this episode's coming out on February 5th. Yeah. 
and the following week, it's coming out on February 12th, two days before my birthday, we have to wrap up this franchise as quickly as possible, and I'm not going to go too much in the detail, but we are trying to plan something in the next few weeks. We don't have all the details yet, nothing set in stone right now, mm-hmm. but when we finally settle some plans in motion, then we can address it, but I feel like we're not really going to have any time for us to do a birthday episode for me. So I'm just going to say, how about this? We'll do we'll do parts three and four of the Saw franchise review. We'll wait and see what happens with the plans that we got set in motion. And then once that's done, we'll recap all of the Saw traps. And hopefully by then we will have watched Spiral... If we watch Spiral, we could do a quick Spiral review and then recap on all the different tests from the Saw movies. Mm. Does that sound good? I mean, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fine. So with that in mind, should we go into Saw 5? Yeah. I do want to ask, though, going back to the Boulay Brothers Dragula. So we're on (sighs) Season 3, Episode 4. Who do you think is going to win this season? I don't fucking know. I've only watched... I haven't even watched the whole thing. Who's your favorite, though? What? Are you talking about Priscilla Chambers, who kind of looks like a mixture between uh, Michael Stipe from R.E.M. and freaking uh, Moby? I was not thinking that when I saw her, but... She kind of looked like Ian McKay from Minor Threat also. You do like her, though. She's, like, your favorite. No... First of all, just because I laugh and chuckle at this person doesn't mean she's my top favorite. But I'm just saying. But who do you like the most? Who are you hoping she is to win? A, she, I like I like her because she's like she's very feisty and very much of a bitch. I don't know. It's just like she doesn't seem like she belongs in the in the group of people in the, in this in this competition. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to set any drama because I don't want any of these bitches find me. <laughs> I don't then, think they can. And then try you, to kick my ass. you got to realize this too, Colin. Season 3 of Dragula came out in 2019, so it's all been said and done at this point. It's hey, been, hey, some of them hold grudges like elephants. It's been four fucking years. I mean, still, this is new to us, but it's old Has news. Has it really been four fucking years for that? Yeah. I mean, it's old news to the rest of the world, but to you and me, it's new, so... Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're all pretty good. I don't know. There's just a lot of fucking drama. I have a few favorites. I'm really impressed with Landon so far, Landon Sider. I do like Landon. Landon's cool. Landon Sider has some really cool concepts and costume (laughs) designs, and I love that for them. Like, it's really cool. And then Hollow Eve really pushes the envelope with how them getting grotesque the, yeah. they can push their concepts. Them getting the tattoos that they did were yeah. fucking hilarious. Yeah, season three, episode three, they their extermination challenge was to get tattoos between the three lowest scoring competitors. Yeah. And Vaka lost. I mean, <laughs> Yaska? Yavska. Yavska. You're only saying that because I'm drinking vodka tonight. Hey, you should. It's Friday, you know, get a little tanked. <laughs> yeah, but I'm okay. I had a couple of my special cocktails, so I'm good. So you only had two. That's a couple? Yeah, a couple is two. You oh. know, like a couple of people? That's, yeah. You know what you call a couple? Two people who are together? Yeah. I always okay. feel like a couple always seems more than two, but yes. But I think that's more like a few. A few is like three people. Yeah, and then what about four? Quadruple. Oh, quad those people. 
You know what a three-person relationship's called? Bizarre love triangle. A thruple. No, what? A thruple? Yeah, a thruple. You I didn't just know call that? It, uh, no, I just call it a bizarre love triangle. Yeah, a thruple. I just, when I think of bizarre love triangle, I think of that song by New Order called Bizarre Love Triangle. And that's what it makes me think of a thruple. Yeah, it's a thruple. Okay. Also, did you know that if you live in a swingers community, you know what the two, like, common... No, I think my mom knows, though. No, but you know what, <laughs> you know what like, the top two common household decorations are to uh, let people know you're uh, a swinger? Penis beebs? No. And, uh, oh, no. Um, the, uh, no, I forgot what if it was. If you don't know, don't, it's okay to no, say no, you don't No, no, I know. do remember what it was before, but what is it? Flamingos. Uh, so pink flamingos and pineapples. Hold the fuck on. What? Hold the fuck on. My mom's house. Does she have a pink flamingo in her yard? <gasps> does she have a pink flamingo in her yard? Yes, yeah, she does. <gasps> in, her, in the front yard. Your mom's a swinger. Shut up! No, she's not. <laughs> she don't swing that way. <laughs> Oh my god. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this episode. Oh my god. But we're gonna keep it in there because I think it's hilarious. Look at no. the bars right <laughs> Mom does have a flamingo in her front yard and also there's a pineapple tree somewhere around there. My wait, mom wait, for, my wait. Mom, there's mom. a pineapple tree. I don't think pineapples grow from trees, do they? Yeah, it's a pineapple tree. I thought they grew from, like, a plant. You're a plant. Anyway. No, like, I'm going to look it up, but if somebody's growing a pineapple tree in their yard, they're a huge fucking swinger. And they're letting the whole neighborhood know. <laughs> well, my mom had a pine... Had a, had a, had a, oh, my God. What did she have? For a Christmas tree, she had a... Um, oh, a palm tree? A palm tree. Okay. I, was gonna say, I don't think she, she put, has a pineapple tree. But I was yeah. going to say, if for Christmas she put up a pineapple tree, she's a big fucking swinger in Florida. <laughs> But she had a flamingo and she decorated it for Christmas and it was in the front yard and um I didn't even know that's not swingers. You should tell her though. Be like, hey mom, do you know what it means to have a flamingo in your yard? Hey mom, do you are you a swinger? <laughs> just 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 ask the question, see what response you get. We're well into the podcast. We should be talking about sauce. I've been trying to tell you this and then your bitch ass was just like, and when do you, and when do you keep me talking about Dragula? Let's get into Saw 5. Yes, please. Get it over with. Even though you've never watched it. I want to okay. play a game and the game is for you to shut the hell up and play and, okay. and do this. Saw 5 was released on October 24th, 2008. It had a runtime of an hour and 38 minutes. It was directed by David Hackle. Dars Tobin Bell as John Kramer. Costas Mandalar as Mark Hoffman. Betsy Russell as Jill Tuck. What's up? Nothing. Why are you poking me? I don't know. I just felt like poking you. I was bored. Okay. (laughs) Mark Ralston as Dan Erickson. Is Donnie Wahlberg back in here? No, he's not. His head got crushed between two blocks of ice, remember? Of course he did. He's not in this one. Just like his career. Scott Patterson (laughs) as Agent Strom. Julie Benz is Brit. And Julie Benz stated that she had nightmares due to the film's intensity. Really? Yeah. That's fucking hot. Danny Glover was offered a chance to reprise his role in a flashback, and he had to decline because of shooting conflicts with the film Blindness that was also released in 2008. What? Yeah. That's bullshit. Well, same thing with Donnie Wahlberg in one of the movies. They didn't think they were going to... Well, just put Mark Wahlberg in the movie instead. Nah, 
No. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. <laughs> he was already in the movie The Happening. That's the closest he's going to get to horror films, okay? Oh, man, that's what's happening? Ugh. The role of Dan Erickson was written for William Forsyth. He declined the offer due to scheduling conflicts. The synopsis goes, despite the fact that fiendish serial killer Jake Saw is dead, his work lives on through a new apprentice, Lieutenant Mark Hoffman, a cop who appeared to be hot on the murderer's trail. As fellow lawman agent Peter Strom begins to suspect Hoffman is Jigsaw's protege, the fledgling killer sets out to dispose of him. Okay. But no, that's uh, interesting. Some of the casting members didn't occur, uh, recur in this movie. Well, yeah, because at this point, Detective Carey has been killed, Danny Glover's character's been killed, mm-hmm. Donnie Wahlberg's character's been killed, and Lyric Bent, his fate has kind of been undetermined at this point, so we don't know what's going to happen to him. Oh, okay. He doesn't make any more reappearances in the Saw franchise, unfortunately, so we are kind of left to assume so, that he's dead. Oh, wow. So the guy who played Jigsaw, he's gone? Yeah, he dies at the end of the third movie. Which you would know if you had finished watching it with me. Alright, so some behind-the-scenes facts. The footage of the actors caught in the latest series of Trash was all shot in sequential order. Even though family relations is a recurring theme throughout the Saw franchise, this is the first film in the series with no two participants Mm -hmm. in any of the traps being related to each other. Producer Oren Cools owns the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey team, Goalies Olaf Kolzik and Mike Smith wore saw-themed masks for two weeks when the film opened. The masks were then auctioned off. Oh, wow. Interesting, huh? I want that mask. I don't know where you would be able to find it, but... Yeah, I'll find it somewhere. (laughs) So we'll go into the plot, and just like last time, along the way, I've put in some behind-the-scenes facts that I wanted to touch base on as we go through. Mm -hmm. You ready? Yeah. So convicted murderer Seth Baxter wakes up chained to a table beneath a pendulum blade. Can you not read over my shoulder? Can you back up? Wow. Rude. He is told that he can release himself by crushing his hands between two presses. He does so, but the blade still bisects him as someone watches discreetly. Seth's trap was inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Pit and the Pendulum. Oh, yeah. The pendulum trap was a real working model. However, for the times when actor Joris Jarsky was underneath it, the metal blade was replaced with a foam one. The device Joris had to insert his hands into also had foam in between them, protecting his hands from actually being crushed when he activated the device. So FBI agent Peter Strom escapes from the home he was locked in by Detective Hoffman. He is then attacked by a figure in a pig mask and wakes up with his head sealed in a box being quickly filled with water. Outside, Hoffman delivers Corbett, the kidnapped daughter of Jeff, to the police and claims that they were the only survivors. Strom, having survived the trap by performing a tracheotomy with his pen, is brought out alive as well, much to Hoffman's shock. Scott Patterson was apprehensive about sticking his head in a sealed box that would fill with water. The trap was tested beforehand and didn't go well, which only added to his concern. He ultimately stepped up and did the scene himself without resorting to a stuntman. The trick to the stunt is that the walls of the box were slid open by stagehands, draining the trap as soon as he signaled with his hands. Hmm. Several takes were required, however, to capture the scene as he found himself uncomfortable at various points during the shooting of the scenes. Thoughts? I mean, God, I'd probably be uncomfortable with all that shit too. 
Yeah. And like I said, you really have to watch the movies to kind of get an understanding or a feel of how urgent these scenes are. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, once they once they wake up and realize they're, they're trapped in these things, and then they're given their delivery of the concept of these tests through, via videotape, you know, there there's like a sense of urgency that like, okay, once this tape stops, I have to find a way out, otherwise I'm going to die. Yeah, but me trying to do this, if I was like one of the actors and had to do some of these like stunts or whatatever, I'd probably be passing out. Because, right. you know, it's just like some of the stuff that you have to do in this, especially when you're doing stunt work, it's just, it's scary. You know, it can be, yeah. It can be near death, but like literally, <coughs> as long as you enjoy what you do. But man, if I had to do that, I'd probably freak the fuck out. Yeah, and I mean, it. I have to wonder with this test too, because I don't think there really was a chance for Strom to get out of this box. I think Hoffman really designed this so that Strom would die. Mm. And then that way there would be nobody, truly no survivors. That's so, what he was anticipating. So there really was no way to get out of this trap no matter what. Right, which is what has me kind of wondering, if you listen to the last couple parts of this franchise review, I had said that each apprentice, or Jigsaw himself, have different motives for designing these traps. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about the difference between John Kramer and Amanda, John Kramer is, even though these tests are very brutal and self-mutilating trauma, Uh, yeah. There is always a chance for survival. I will say for me, for example, the one I know that really couldn't get out of it, like literally sucked, especially in part three, is the guy with the rings. Around his face? Yeah, body yeah. and like trying to get yeah. all that. So yeah, Amanda, that shit fucked me up. So Amanda had designed that <laughs> test. The problem with that one, though, was even if he had gotten that chain out of his jaw... Yeah. He wouldn't have been able to get out of the room because the door was welded shut. But that was the thing, though. That's what is meant not to get out of. You yeah, know. and again, because Amanda designed it, she had intended for Troy to die in there anyway. So he was never going to get out of that room alive. Yeah, so he was practically So fucked. that that made her a murderer just for the sake of killing people. That's not what John Kramer had hoped for this legacy of his. Yeah. He had hoped that Mark Hoffman would have been able to carry this out as well. But, but we'll we'll get into why his philosophies are also a bit askew here. Hmm. So Hoffman is promoted and credited with closing the jigsaw case. Hoffman later finds a note in his office reading, quote, I know who you are, and learns of Agent Lindsay Perez's death while taking Strom's cell phone from the police evidence room. At the hospital, Strom tells Hoffman that Perez's last words were Detective Hoffman and questions how he escaped the plant. After being put on medical leave by his boss, Agent Dan Erickson, Strom suspicious of Hoffman, decides to uncover his involvement with Jigsaw and takes case files of past Jigsaw victims to research them. In an underground sewer, Ashley, Britt, Charles, Luba, and Malik awaken with collars locked around their necks, connected by cables to a set of blades mounted on the wall behind them. The keys to the collars are in individual glass boxes across the room. A videotape informs them that they are all connected and that they must, quote, do the opposite of their instincts if they are all to survive the tests ahead of them. Ashley fails to retrieve the key and gets decapitated. In the second room, which is filled with explosives on a timer, Charles first attacks Malik and then Luba, but Mm -hmm. she, Britt, and Malik each retrieve keys to bomb shelters set in the walls. Yeah. 
Charles is left to die when the timer expires and the explosives detonate. In the third room, Britt kills Luba, and she and Malik connect their her corpse to five cables to complete an electric circuit that unlocks the next door. In the final room, Malik and Britt find a machine fitted with five saws and a beaker requiring ten pints of blood to open the final door. They realize that all prior tests could have been completed without casualties if they had worked together and figure out their connection. They were all involved in a building fire that killed eight people. Mm. Malik and Britt conceded a truce and each sliced their arm in the saws to provide the blood needed to open the final door. Fucking Christ. That's just intense. It is because they don't realize until that very last room... Because this is the this is the odd thing about this this whole thing. So in the very first room, they're all connected with these collars to cables. Yeah. And across the room from them, there are each these boxes with the keys to unlock their collars. Mm-hmm. Once Ashley dies and the rest of them were able to get their collars off, Britt takes all of the keys, thinking she might need them later on in these tests. Yeah. Comes to find out that all five keys could have unlocked they're all the same key so one key could have unlocked all five collars they didn't need to go through the challenge that they had to do if one person could have grabbed the key then all five of them could have freed themselves fucking serious yeah fuck and then in the second room the chambers that they had to get into to save themselves from the pipe bombs Mm -hmm. could have fit more than one person they they didn't need to lock charles out they could have saved his life Yeah, and then with Luba in that third room, you didn't need a dead body. Mm. If you had five people, they all would have experienced a small shock, nothing fatal. But because they didn't think to do that, they went against their natural instincts, and they just assumed that we have to kill each other off one by one in order to keep going, which is terrible to assume that. And if that's your natural instinct is to kill off others to save yourself, thinking that's the only way you can survive this, that's even more terrible. But I like that that's the plot twist here, is that they all could have saved each other by working together. Mm. Any thoughts before I go forward? Not really. I think you did all the thoughts for me right there. All right. So, yeah. The original screenplay called for the characters played by Megan Good and Julie Benz to go through most of their ordeals wearing just their undergarments. The production team decided against this when they realized how committed and serious the two actresses were about their roles. Real animal blood was used for the final trap. The director said they would have they wouldn't have used it if they had known how bad it was going to smell. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That sounds interesting. Strom learns that Hoffman killed Seth Baxter, who had killed Hoffman's sister years prior. John Kramer abducts Hoffman after the fact and blackmails him into helping him set up his future quote-unquote games. Strom concludes that everyone was meant to die at the plant except for Corbett and Hoffman. John's ex-wife, Jill Tuck, claims Strom is stalking her. After Hoffman tells Erickson about Strom's theory of a second jigsaw accomplice, Erickson tries to call him. Hoffman answers on Strom's phone and hangs up. Erickson has one of his agents track his tracks the phone signal. Following the signal to the sewer observation room, Erickson finds the phone and his own personnel file, both planted by Hoffman. He also finds the still-living Brit and Malik and calls for medical attention. 
before putting an all-points bulletin on Strom, convinced that he is Jigsaw's successor. Meanwhile, Strom follows Hoffman to the renovated nerve gas house from the second movie and finds a tape. In the tape, Hoffman urges Strom to enter the box, but he stops it short and ambushes Hoffman, who he seals in the box. Strom believes he has finally caught Hoffman, but the door to the room suddenly shuts itself and the walls begin to close in as the box is lowered beneath the floor. Strom finishes playing the tape, which warns him that if he does not enter the box, he will die and will be framed as Jingsaw's apprentice. Safe inside the box, Hoffman watches as Strom unsuccessfully tries to escape the room and is ultimately crushed to death. The glass case that Detective Hoffman falls into the coffin in the final trap was actually made of rubber. Mm. And actor Scott Patterson did not know the film's ending. The special effects team started doing casts of Patterson's arm. These were used to simulate his bones breaking. Mm. And he asked why they, what they were for. Patterson laughingly said that the special effects t- technician, surprised that he didn't know, told him that they were killing off his character at the end of the film. Wow, what a great way to not tell a person. Well, what a terrible way of finding out that your character is going to die in a movie. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think it's interesting. You know, it's intriguing how that all goes out down that way. I do want to talk about how these people are all connected because they're all chosen for a reason. And along the way, they kind of learn a little bit more about it, but it doesn't come into fruition until like the very end of the game when it's just Malik and Brick. So essentially what happened was, I want to say Britt was the woman whose real estate company needed the property that they had demolished for commercial purposes. Luba has connections with the city hall or town hall that authorizes the exchange of properties and all that stuff. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Like commercial properties <clears throat> and things like that. Okay. Charles is a investigative journalist. He was writing the coverage of the story about the burning building that killed eight people. Okay. Ashley, the woman who dies in the first trap, was the fire inspector on the case. She Hmm. had to file the report about what happened. Interesting. She wrote a false report about the people to try to cover this up. And Malik was the man who set the place on fire. So all of these people, in their own greedy way, because Malik got paid off to do it, Luba got paid off to do it, and she would have benefited from it in her career. Britt would have benefited from it financially. Charles would have benefited for for his right career. And again, Ashley was paid off to write a false report. So each of them had benefited in some way the death of these eight people and a house fire. It's terrible. But again, in the time that this movie was released and produced, it was right around the time of the recession and the house marking crash. It was not a good time for a lot of people, you know. And as we get into the next movie, like because of the recession, a lot of different... It bleeds into right into the next movie. It not only bleeds into the next movie, but like I said, because of the recession, the house market crash, it would also affect inflation, the groceries. Just everything that we need in our lives. It's just it was keep growing. Right. It's costing too much. Right. And again, that would go into effect with other aspects of life, like insurance companies, which we will get into the next movie about. But yeah, these five people in part five are not good people. They all benefited from tragedy, which did not need to be a thing. But Mm -hmm. greedy people do really shitty things. Is there anything you wanted to talk about before we go into part six? Not really. All right. But it is a good movie, I will say, from from what you're saying. 
from the story. Yeah, and I really am looking forward to actually sitting down and watching these movies because Colin and I will originally do this thing every once in a while where one of us will get into the habit of watching a lot of things that the other is subjected to watching, even if it's not something that we generally like. So this past week, I've been subjected to watching things that I don't normally like to watch. And to try to get Colin to watch anything that I would like to watch is like pulling teeth. Which is why I'm interested that you like Dracula. I mean, I'm intrigued by it. Yeah, but it's got a lot of different concepts that you like. It seems like every season they do some sort of rock challenge. Like they did a heavy metal one in the first season, a glam rock in the second season, and then they just did a simple rock competition in this one, and you liked them, which I thought was really cool. Especially when some of them dress up <clears throat> as gore and stuff like that, and one of them dressed up as poison ivy for the cramps, and there's actually one, <sighs> I forgot who it was, but this person looked like the lead singer from the uh, 80s movie Trick or Treat, which is like a dead lead singer, big huge black hair, makeup, leather pants, all that stuff, and like came back from the dead. Was it like a mohawk-inspired look, or was it something different? No, no, it was something different. It was like long black hair. It was like... I think it might have been Priscilla Chambers. I don't remember. But I saw that trick-or-treat kind of influence to it, and I was like, that's pretty fucking cool. Were they wearing the red-studded jacket? No. Okay. It was all black, honey. Okay. I was going to say, that was Ava Destruction. But anyway, Saw 6. Yeah. (laughs) God damn with your damn Dracula. So Saw 6 was released on October 23rd, 2009, and it had a run time of an hour and 30 minutes, and it was directed by Kevin Grutert. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name correctly, and I apologize again if I am mispronouncing it. David A. Armstrong's last Saw film as director of photography, and this was not screened for critics. It stars... It stars... <laughs> Tobin Bell and Shawnee Smith as John Kramer and Amanda Young in flashbacks. Mm. Costas Mandalar as Mark Hoffman. Betsy Russell as Jill Tuck. And Peter Outerbridge as William Easton. And I'm going to butcher this name and I apologize if I do. Yes. But before I go into it, have you ever watched the show Scream Queens? Not really, but I heard a lot about it. You might be thinking of a different Scream Queen show. No, I'm show. talking about the same one with Jamie Lee Curtis, right? You are thinking of a different one because I'm oh. thinking about the MTV show Scream Queen, which was a re- another reality show where girls had to go through challenges to determine who was going to be the ultimate Scream Queen. Seriously? And if they had won the competition, they would have won a breakout role in Saw 6. And, and they did, didn't they? Yeah. One of them did. Tanendra Howard played Simone in the opening scene. She won season one of Scream Queen, and her award was this breakout role in Sussex. Okay. I was going to say, do you you don't know that one, do you? No. Okay. Because I do remember this show. I watched a couple of seasons. It only ran for like two seasons. Of course it did. So Tanendra Howard won season one, and she was cast as Simone for... Saw six. And did she die? No, actually, she survives, but let me get into that. The script was shipped under the name Evolution 3. 
This was done so the script wouldn't leak out. Evolution Pictures is the company that owns Twisted Pictures, which is what made the Saw films. Well, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. The synopsis goes, with Jigsaw still directing events from beyond the grave, Hoffman emerges as the heir to the killer's twisted legacy. But as the FBI closes in, Hoffman sets in motion a game that is designed to reveal Jigsaw's grand scheme. Some pre-production facts to get into. A week before filming began, director Kevin Grutert was informed that the film would be post-converted to 3D. He was upset at this decision as he hadn't planned or storyboarded such a movie. The idea was dropped for this installment due to time constraints, but resurrected for the next film in the series, Saw 3D, also known as Saw 7. Oh, okay. In the early planning stages, one discarded story idea had Detective Hoffman taking on the Mafia, which I think definitely would have been a stretch. Mm. That's like a huge stretch. Sounds like Although, this is the lowest grossing Saw film. All of the other installments earned over $100 million at the World White Box office. And this one didn't? This one only made $68 million. Wow. Saw 3D was originally intended to be released in two parts, but the disappointing box office performance of this film led to, quote, Saw 3D being released as a single film. Which is fine. We don't need to keep dragging this shit out. I'm sorry, but, like, I love the Saw movies, but there's only so much of these you can watch before it starts to become a drag. Exactly. You know, unless you have a creative idea for each movie, yeah, that's great. But if you don't and you're dragging this on, what's the point? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's kind of stupid. The first installment of the series in which Jigsaw himself appears in a pre-recorded video to deliver the rules of a game. This is the first installment of the franchise where Billy the Puppet appears in person to deliver the rules of a game rather than a warning or a congratulations message. I do like the traps in this movie. I think they are very, very intriguing. You think they're a lot more creative? They're definitely more creative. Mm. This movie actually has a fan favorite saw trap which we'll get into towards the end i want to know what it is now we will get into it but you're gonna love it Mm. you're gonna love it okay i promise you and if we like i said if you ever watch these movies it's gonna hit a lot harder seeing it in person than it is to read it yeah read it read it or hear about it okay yeah all right so to get into the plot Predatory lenders Eddie and Simone are locked in head harnesses with screws aimed at their temples and have one minute to each cut flesh from their bodies and weigh the scale in their favor to survive. Eddie, who is overweight, slices several chunks of fat from his stomach, but is killed after Simone chops off her arm and tips the scale before the timer expires. The game is observed by Detective Hoffman, who has just escaped from the trap that killed FBI agent Peter Strom. He then uses Strom's severed hand to plant his fingerprints at the scene. The police and FBI agent Dan Erickson investigate FBI alongside Agent Perez, whose survival was concealed by Erickson for her protection. During Eddie's autopsy, Dr. Hefner reveals that the blade used to cut the puzzle piece from his remains is the same blade used years earlier on Zeth Baxter. Hmm. Perez and Erickson reopen the investigation and analyze the videotapes found at the scene. Hoffman arrives at Jill's clinic and demands five envelopes containing photographs of the following game's test subjects from the box left to her in John's last request. The game involves health insurance executive William and his associates. 
whose company whose company's dubious business policies turned down their clients' coverages for their medical treatments, including John. While it is used as a plot point for the film, an insurance company cannot void coverages for seeking an alternative non-traditional therapy. They don't have to pay it, but it cannot be grounds to void coverage. I do want to take a minute to talk about this too because you and I work in healthcare. I work in billing, Colin works. It's like administration, but not quite. The short term is is that you work somewhere in administration. You, you are the first people that patients see before they are admitted to the hospital, right? Yeah. So essentially, sort of like that. But you and I both know that health insurance companies don't just turn down clients because of bad medical history. Mm. That's what these people are doing, which, again, is all, uh, it's all because of the recession. Insurance companies don't want to pay out large lump sums of money to people who are considered to be high risk. Mm -hmm. That's usually what auto insurances or homeowner insurances or even like renter's insurance do. In health insurance, it's a lot more different because especially in America, again, it's definitely different for a lot of other countries in the world. But in America, we don't have universal health care. We have to pay for our health care. Sometimes, sometimes it's taken out of our own paychecks, or if you if you're not covered through your employment, you have to pay out of pocket, and you usually have to choose between somewhere of a high deductible plan, which is a cheaper payment, or a copay plan, which is a higher cost payment. But you get more coverage if you pay more, like with the copay plan. That's true, yeah. It's crazy. But they don't turn you down if you have, like, pre-existing conditions. Like, if you come from a long family line of, like, pre-existing heart conditions, mm-hmm. and you go to sign up for, like, Excellus or Medicare... You're they're fucked. Not, no, they're not going to turn you down for that because they're like, just because you have a pre-existing condition doesn't mean we're not going to deny you health care. Oh, that's a good it's point. It's all about whether or not you can pay them. Yeah. That's re- that's really all there is, and just like this, like just be, it's things like this that make this intriguing. Is because even though it's not really what's happening, if insurance companies were to actually do that, it's almost essentially illegal. I mean, because you can turn a client down for not making their payments, but you can't deny them if they have pre-existing health conditions and are considered to be somewhat high risk of large payouts, which again is something they have to do. Anyway, the fish tank in William's office was full of real piranha. When Jigsaw notices them during his visit in William's office, he finds their appearance amusing. This may allude to the fact that piranhas are predators known for viciously preying on unsuspecting animals and sometimes even on each other when food supply is low. From Jigsaw's point of view, a fitting metaphor for William's insurance company. Because like I said... William is the president of this company and he has a team of people working for him who do background checks on all of his clients. People who are already on his insurance plans and people who are pending applications. If they find any sort of like pre-existing conditions that can put them at high risk of large payouts for medical treatments, they're not going to get accepted. And if they are diagnosed with other like pre-existing conditions like cancer, they will get dropped as clients. Again, I don't think that's something that they can do. That seems very, very illegal to me. I don't know for sure. I just know that when you go into a medical facility, you either pay out of pocket or you pay with insurance. And whether whatever kind of coverage you get with your insurance is what they're authorized to pay. 
Yes. We mean yes. Yes, I agree. Okay. So after Hoffman abducts them to an abandoned zoo, William and his janitor, a heavy smoker, are suspended in chains with large metal vices that will crush their bodies each time they breathe in their oxygen masks. The vice kills Hank, and William proceeds to his other three tests to unlock the remaining bombs shackled from his limbs. So he's got these bomb cuffs around his wrists and ankles. Mm -hmm. Each test has a key at the end that will unlock one from each of these shackles. Yeah, so he's got to go through all these tests. Unfortunately, these are not the type of tests where William would have to subject himself to self-mutilation to free himself. He has to make difficult choices to save other people's lives or kill other people off it's a very very interesting thing because he this is a this is a task that he already does with his job but these are people that he actually knows because these are some of his employees so this is what makes the challenges even more difficult because he knows he knows hank he knows the janitor pretty well the second test at an aquarium forces william to save his middle-aged secretary Addie over his file clerk, Alan, who hangs to death from a barbed wire noose. I want to pause because the the plot here... Did you just pause on that? No, I just put a place marker so I know where to pick up where I left off. Anyway, I wanted to stop here because the plot that I have written down doesn't fully go into detail. So in an empty aquarium tank, he's got his elderly secretary... Addie and his young file clerk Alan and he has to choose which one dies. Now the point that Jigsaw makes to him is that although Addie is older and is a cancer survivor she has a lot of family and friends that she would be leaving behind should she die. Whereas Alan who is younger healthier but has no family or friends in the area to account for him would not be missed if he were to die, which is a pretty messed up thing to do. But he also does this thing where he shows William a slideshow of pictures of Addie and Alan's life. And in it, you see Addie surrounded with family and friends. She's at parties. She's at bars. Like, she's hanging out with people that love her. Yeah. Whereas Alan is seen in a lot of pictures by himself. Going at the grocery store, at a park, in his car, totally by himself. So it's like, who who would miss a young 20-something? It, it seems pretty messed up, but ultimately William chooses Addie over Alan. Huh. Because Addie has been working for him for a long time. Like I said, she's older, she's got family and friends, probably people that he has come across and met, you know, as her, as her employer. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's a very interesting test. I do like this test because, yeah. A, I think, unfortunately for Adam, I think William made a good choice. I, I It sounds bad saying it out loud, but, like, what, what can you do? At the boiler room, William unwittingly releases his lawyer, Debbie, who attacks him to retrieve a key inside his body and unlocks a spear gun attached to our harness. He fights her off until the device kills her. Again, I'm going to stop here because this plot is not that detailed. William goes into the next room. It's a boiler room and it's covered with like layers and floors and walls of chain link fencings. And down in one of the lower levels of this room, it's his lawyer, Debbie. Now, again, because William makes a lot of bad legal decisions when it comes to running his insurance company, Of course, he's going to need a lawyer to back up all of his statements and claims, right? So Debbie is another important and valuable member of his company. So he has to guide Debbie 
through a series of all of these. It's like a maze, essentially, a maze of chain link fences. The problem is that some of these chutes that she has to crawl through have the steam, like, boiler shooting out of it that can t- potentially burn her. So long story short, he manages to get Debbie through this maze, but then once she realizes that the key to unlock her harness is inside his stomach, she goes ballistic and tries to kill him. But he pushes her and the timer, the harness goes off and a spear gun goes right through her head. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she dies anyway. All that effort and work for nothing to try to save somebody who wanted to kill you to save themselves. Mm. Which, again, seems pretty like, seems like something a lawyer would do. Very cutthroat. William's final test, and this is the test that fans love, by the way, so just listen. William's final test involves his six subordinates chained to a rotating roundabout where he is only able to save two of them from a mounted shotgun. The game is viewed by mothers Tara and her teenage son Brent and news journalist Pamela Jenkins from two opposite animal enclosures below the observation room. So during the game, Hoffman is called away by Erickson to the audio lab after obtaining the videotape. Erickson, now aware of Strom's demise, confronts Hoffman after discovering the abnormalities found in Strom's fingerprints at the time of his death. When Hoffman's voice is unscrambled from the tape, he immediately kills Erickson, Perez, and a technician. Hoffman returns to the observation room and finds the letter he wrote to Amanda, who indirectly instigated Cecil's robbery at Jill's clinic that resulted in her miscarriage. The letter was found by Pamela and given to Jill, who then uses it to ambush Hoffman. Jill, who had the remaining contents from her box, including a sixth envelope containing Hoffman's photo, restrains him and locks a modified reversed bear trap to his head, but ultimately fulfilling John's will to test Hoffman after his death. The director mentioned in the commentary track that the twitching and shivering that Amanda does in her scenes with Cecil was really due to low temperatures and rain in Toronto at the time of filming. Shawnee couldn't stop shivering because she was cold and they were shooting outdoors. Anyway, William reaches the end of his path and enters the cage where he is reunited with Pamela, who is his sister. Not Tara and Brent. Hmm. So he is confronted by Tara and Brent, the widow and son of Harold, a former client who succumbed to his heart disease after William denied his medical request. John's videotape informs Tara to decide William's fate by using the lever in her cell, connecting to tanks of hydrofluoric acid from each cage. As William and Pamela try to persuade the family, an enraged Brent pulls the lever, releasing a platform of needles that kills William by injecting acid into his body. Jill Jill exits the room as Hoffman escapes his wrist restraints, and he escapes from the trap just as it activates, sustaining an injury to his right cheek in the process. The soundtrap Zep 6 has 6 in its name, as a length of 6 minutes and 7 seconds and is played in the background of the final 6 minute climax scenes before the credits roll. This is also in the 6th film in the series. Additionally, Zepp Hindel was the name of the hospital orderly that was forced to assist Jigsaw in the first film. That's just a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. A lot of shit just hit the fan. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Well, I mean, I don't know. Here, just be honest here. I'm going to be honest. I'm not a big fan of the Saw films. 
I'm not. All right. I know those are your favorites, and I'm not gonna hate on them or anything. But it's just, it's cool what the setups are, especially for the traps and everything like that. But just the stories itself, I don't know, I'm just not a big fan. And it's not saying anything bad, I'm just saying my own personal opinion. I know, and I get it. I know that Saw films are not for everybody, and that's okay if you don't like them. I would just say that as a podcaster, especially a podcaster on a horror movie podcast... You should at least see it once so you can say that you saw it. So, I mean, at least I'll give all of them a try. Just at least I watch them once. Right. And I mean, like I said, some things may surprise you. I mean, even if you say you don't like it, who knows? Maybe you might watch a Saw movie that you might find intriguing or pretty clever. Or maybe not even a Saw movie. Maybe any other movie, you know? Hmm. I mean, how did you feel about Megan? Megan, I like. Megan was definitely out there. You didn't think you were going to like it going in, though, didn't you? No, probably not. Exactly. But you ended up liking it. Yeah. And that's just another example of, like, at least give something a try once. If you don't like it, you don't have to watch it again. You can at least say, I watched it once, I didn't like it, and I don't want to watch it. That's fine. If you have, obviously you have a favorite movie, you have tons of favorite movies actually that you will watch unrepetitively over and over and over again. It never gets tired to you. Well, if it does get tired for me, I won't watch it for a long time, so. I know, but I'm just saying like, I feel like as podcasters, especially with this type of niche, which is horror films and TV shows and other horror content, Mm -hmm. you should at least be able to say, I watched something once, I gave it a try, it wasn't my thing, and I don't plan on watching it again. That's fine. Yeah, well, they do have something that I actually do want to watch that they just came out with it on Tubi, and Hmm. it came out as a documentary about two years ago, is the documentary of behind the scenes of the Stephen King's It. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Which I want to see that. That looks really good. Right. Yeah, so I'm intrigued about watching that one, so yes. Okay. For me, personally, I've watched these two films. I thought they were really good films. I'm actually looking forward to talking about the next one, which is Saw 3D, the final chapter, or the final Saw, or something like that. But that one was a good one. I'm really fun. I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it again, Mm -hmm. but... What did you think so far of the two? I mean, just from me talking about it. I know I didn't really... I probably didn't live up to the hype. Probably not. <laughs> it's one, It's really one of those you have to see it. Yeah, well, you were talking. That's why. Because you're talking about it. It's not really the same emotion as watching the movie. Plus, anytime I talk, you don't really listen. So I do listen. Shut up. Anyway. All right. Anyway. So, is that it for our segment? or? Uh... Honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like we could talk about something relative to the Saw films, but until we get to that final part of the Saw franchise where we rank our favorite Saw traps, and uh, obviously until you actually see the Saw films, I can't really go further into talking about it without you knowing more about it. So Fine. That where I could just look up clips on YouTube where they have all the... Then you might as well just watch the movies me now all right fine i know it's it's not like you could just look up saw films but only the trap scenes i would love to see only the trap scenes because that's what makes the saw films all the other like shit all the other there, details are just the dialogue and everything it's moot just points says yeah moot points yeah. yeah i mean some of it yeah doesn't really need to be a thing like i get the whole backstory behind john kramer i mean if he had just had you know his cancer diagnosis and this newfound sense of 
educating people into appreciating their, the lives that they have, I would understand that. But the attempted suicide and then going further back to the death of his unborn child leading to his divorce and all that stuff, like, that didn't need to be a thing, I don't, well, I don't think. it turned out to be, so what can you do? Yeah, I mean, some of it didn't need to be a thing. I also kind of get to, like, now we know the true connection between Amanda and John Kramer. Because mm-hmm. not only was Amanda, you know, his apprentice, his one of his first few victims, one of his surviving victims, she was a patient at Jill's clinic. Mm-hmm. And she, at one point, tried to get clean, but then she met Cecil, and she knew that Cecil knew where to get the drugs from Jill's clinic, and then convinced him to rob from Jill. Like, that whole thing didn't need to be a thing again, but I, I don't know. What do you think? It's it's interesting. It's cool, I guess, you know? But I'm just going to have to watch him then. Alright, well... That has been another episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. So tune in to the next episode where we're going to talk about Saw 7. Yeah, I mean, we... I don't know. We might finish it up. I don't know. Oh, no, wait. I'm sorry. I'm I'm completely blanking here. Because not only is there Saw 3D, there's Jigsaw after that. So we have to cover those two films in the next part. I'm sorry. It's late. I'm tired. Wow. And I thought I was tired. Shit. It's late. I'm tired. Colin's pissed me off. You're pissing me off too. Anyway. Anyway. But yeah. You got anything else to say? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a interesting episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I hope you all enjoy. And stay tuned for the next episode. All right. Well, this has been the Abbey Normal Podcast. I am your host, Colin. And I'm Aaliyah. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe, or a nice review for our podcast. It helps boost our show positively. You can also follow us on Instagram and now on TikTok.